There's a true story that is told about the Warsaw Ghetto around 1942. And inside the ghetto were different known homes of Jewish leaders, some of resistance, some of intellectual thought, some of trade. But most of the SS just let these things happen and didn't try to put their thumb too deep into the issue unless it came out. And in one of these particular homes, on one particular cold winter day, an SS guard walks out of the home all by himself with his rifle slung over his shoulder. It was unconventional for one guard to be by himself. So other SS guards patrolling the street went up to him and said, what are you doing inside that house and why are you there all by yourself? The SS guard responded, I'm going there for Yiddish lessons. Why in the world, they asked, would you be getting Yiddish lessons? So the SS guard said, this way, when the Jews are talking about us and they're coming up with some conspiracy or plan, we will know exactly what they're talking about and I'll be on the inside without them knowing because I'll be fluent in Yiddish. The other SS guards kind of nod their heads and they say, it's pretty smart. And the SS guard says, yeah, that's really using my tuchus. <laughs> Believe it or not, that's a true story. And I share that story with you because it's inspirational for me. It's inspirational for me because during the time of the Shoah from 1939 to 1945, and in particular through the systematic annihilation of the Jews, first by taking away their rights, then by taking away their homes, putting them into ghettos, and then exporting them to work in extermination camps. There were moments, there were pockets, there were flashes of what was resistance. And resistance happened in a host of ways. Most of us, when we think of the issue of resistance, we think of the likes of Mordechai Anilevich, the freedom fighter who, along with others, in the Warsaw Ghetto, on Plati Street, and all throughout, he figured out a way to steal arms and to demonstrate in a bunker an entire army that fought back on the Germans and began the real destruction of the ghetto. He did that through armed resistance. But what we realize from the story of the SS guard pointing to his head and calling it a tuchus is that resistance happened in a host of ways. Resistance happened with humor. Resistance happened with intellectual advancement. Resistance happened by not giving in. There were all types of resistances that happened throughout the time of the Holocaust that included all types of clandestine political organizations and meetings that did all types of group thinking in these homes and in the bunkers and undergrounds and through secret languages, whether it was Hebrew or Yiddish or Esperanza, whatever it was, all as a way of maintaining a level of dignity and approach. Why was it happening? Why were these levels of resistance going on? And what were the responsibility of others as they were around it? So we look in this parsha of Kedoshim, 
which is chock full of moral and ethical codes. What we realize is that so many of the laws that dictate how we should live our lives as good people, like the law we looked at earlier of not putting a stumbling block before the blind and that we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves, that there's another law in there that encourages us, almost puts upon us a level of responsibility when it comes to the issue of resistance. And the text, the line, the verse is as follows. Lo ta'amod al-dam re'echa. Lo ta'amod al-dam re'echa. You shall not stand idly by while the blood of your neighbor is spilling and running. You shall not stand idly by. This is the fundamental core concept behind helping another in need. This is the very text which served as the license for the conservative movement in Judaism to first adopt the very notion, the very issue of donating blood many, many decades ago. And in recent years is the same text that actually mandates to us our responsibility of donating organs when we know that the organ will save another's life. Not that we should, but rather we must. Why? Because of this text. We can't stand idly by while the blood of others is spilling. So I have a question for you. How else does that apply to our lives? Does it apply in giving blood? Yes. Does it apply in organ donation as we've spoken about from this Bema before, even on the holidays when we have a larger group of people and talking about our moral and religious obligation? When we know that we can save a life to donate organs? Of course it does. But Lota Modal Damriacha is also telling us that we have a moral and ethical responsibility to not stand idly by when others are in need. That in essence, we have to do a form of resistance. During the time of the Shoah, the Holocaust, there were two resistance experiences, two uprisings that happened that I want to draw your attention to for a moment. Both happened at extermination camps, one at Treblinka and one at Sobibor. Quick history lesson. The difference between a concentration camp and an extermination camp is very simple. A concentration camp at its core was supposed to be a camp where prisoners, predominantly Jewish, went and were held and tortured and suffered and many were killed. An extermination camp like Belzitz, Treblinka, Sobibor, these camps had one purpose, and that was to kill. From the time people got off the train to the time that they were murdered was sometimes as few as three hours. And there was a group of people who worked at these camps who took care of all the needs from getting the people off of the trains to taking off their clothes, escorting them in the showers, and taking care of all the needs for their remains. But no one stayed in the camp. They just took the healthy ones to come and work. At both of these camps, Treblink and Sobibor, these extermination camps, there were uprisings. There were groups of people who formed together in a clandestine and quiet way. And in essence, they shut the camp down. At Sobibor, what they did was they lured a group of SS soldiers into one of the barracks by telling them that a shipment had just come in of gold and coats. And their goal was that as soon as the SS guards had come in, they would attack them with makeshift knives and blades that they had created, kill them, take their weapons, shoot the other Ukrainian and SS guards, 
and open the front gates and run through the German minefields to try and escape. At Sobibor, that's how it went down. And about 250 people escaped, and about 100 survived the war. And immediately after, the camp was leveled. They came in and leveled everything in the camp, and surrounding the camp, they planted pine trees. And it's a very eerie thing when you're in Sobibor, which is in the far east of Poland, in the middle of nowhere. The closest town is Chaum, which is two and a half hours away, and there's no remnant, nothing, of the death camp that exterminated hundreds of thousands of Jews that once was. All there are are trees planted at the exact same height, every single one of them, because they were all planted at the same time to cover up the atrocities that happened there. In Treblinka, almost the same thing. People escaped, and they did a revolt by killing the few SS and Ukrainian guards that were there. And then many of the people ran out into the fields, but the Germans called for backup troops, and only 20 survived the revolt to Treblinka. However, it closed down the camp months later, when they realized that word had gotten out from those few that had survived of the atrocities that were happening and causing revolts from people who were at Umschlagplatz and other places, the final deportation spot, before they headed off to what was their death from the Warsaw Ghetto. Why do I share this with you? I share this with you because those people in the camps understood this text as it's written. We can't stand idly by when our brothers and sisters from Hungary and from Romania and from Germany and from Poland and from Austria are being shoveled in day by day and being killed and we're standing there helping them, escorting them, taking their things, knowing what the end of their days will be like. We have a responsibility. We have a responsibility even through the vehicle, even through the medium of humor, to try and change, to try and affect, to try and make a difference so that we don't just stand idly by, as some would say, sheep going off to the slaughter. We can't do that. That's in our code, that's in Parshat Kedoshim that we read today. It's a responsibility for each and every one of us. So why do I share this all with you on the Shabbat? Three obvious reasons. One, it ties in naturally to the Kedoshim in this text that we read in the Parsha that we just read from Justin and from Alana and others of not standing idly by when that blood flows. The second is because on Monday we will have Yom HaShoah. Sunday night and Monday will commemorate our national and universal day of remembrance for those of the Holocaust. As we light our yellow candles, we will recall all of those and the 6 million Jews and 11 million people who perished. The last reason I share it with you is more of a charge, more of a call to action, and that is to remind each and every one of us that while we are blessed that the Jewish people are not part of a Holocaust and should never be part of a Holocaust again, and with the blessings of the state of Israel, we pray that that will never happen, it doesn't mean that we are free from responsibility when we see others in challenge, when we see Israel oppressed, when we see others hungry in our community, for us to go about our day as if nothing has happened. What we realize is that in the Middle East in particular and around the world, 
things are changing at mock speed. The dial from 2010, and when I say 2010, I'm talking December 31st of 2010, to where we are today in countries like Egypt and Bahrain and Yemen and Libya and Syria and Iran, the dial has changed 90 degrees. It's clearly still moving, and no one knows where it's going to land. Is it going to land at 188 degrees, 180 degrees, 360 degrees? Where is it going to bring us? What we do know is it brings us a level of peril. It brings us a level of worry. And I ask all of us, as people are being killed in Libya and Syria and Yemen, people are being threatened in other places, women are being raped even in Egypt, are we allowed to stand idly by? Are we allowed to only read the papers and watch the news and say this doesn't apply to me and forget it? We live in a generation today that is loaded with articles focused on the individual and less focused on the collective. One of my favorite items, one of my favorite toys that I've gotten in the last few months is the iPad. I see every kid in the Hebrew school with an iPhone and every person I know runs and walks throughout the JCC and other clubs with an iPod. Everyone here has a PC. What does PC stand for? personal computer. Each of those, I and pad and pod and phone, P and personal, talks about the individual. And so little of what we have today, both in the world of technology and the way we operate, focuses on the collective, on the we, on the us. We're so much more focused on the I and the iPad, or the P and the personal, and so less focused on the us and sustained, or the unity in community. One of my biggest frustrations as a rabbi at this congregation, and I would argue it's not just this congregation, if I were a rabbi at any congregation, would be how do we take people and make them feel a sense of responsibility just as our ancestors did, just as others did before us when it says, Al tamod al dam reyecha. Now, some of you might respond to me later today by saying, Rabbi, how can you say we have the same responsibility when things are relatively status quo? And in the time of the Holocaust, six million of our brothers and sisters, our aunts and uncles, were being escorted to their death. I would respond to you by telling you you're absolutely right. And comparing the two would be comparing apples and oranges. However, it doesn't mean that we have no responsibility. I want to jog your memories back to the year of 1986. It was a year, I, I apologize, I think it was actually 1987. It was a year when the Jewish community had a call to action and invited members from everywhere to come and join and march in Washington for the freedom of Soviet refuseniks, for the freedom of Soviet Jews who had wanted to practice their religion openly, who had wanted to question their leadership, who had wanted to go to Israel and were denied that right. Thousands upon thousands of Jews marched in the streets of Washington on that cold December day, and they chanted to President Reagan these words, let my people go. Let my people go. And all of us who went thought it was an incredible sense of unity. It was an incredible call to action. But very few believed what would become the reality months and short years later. 
that beginning with Anatoly Sharansky, who later went to Israel, and thousands upon thousands, literally almost a million, Jews and non-Jews were then later freed as the curtain opened and Soviet regime allowed so many of their people to flow back and forth. Was it our voice that led to make that happen? Perhaps. But if we didn't do it, who knows what our fate would have been? Who knows how many people more could have died if those resistance fighters would have gone on with their daily life as opposed to fighting and resisting? How many more trainloads of people would have come from Budapest? How many would have come from Vienna? How many would have gone to their death and so be born Treblinka if it weren't for those resistance people who shut the place down? Don't we have a responsibility now? As the foreign minister of Egypt claims that he no longer wants to keep the peace treaty that existed for more than 30 years with Israel? Don't we have a responsibility when more than 50% of the Egyptians, which numbers more than 70 million people, all vote and say 50% more than them that they no longer see the value in keeping a peace with their neighbor in Israel, even though the United States sends them $1 billion of year aid in doing so? Don't we have a responsibility to stand up and to resist and to not stand idly by when leaders of nations in Iran, like Ahmadinejad, call for the annihilation of the sovereign state of Israel? Don't we have a responsibility to claim to our country, which I believe we do, that we have the same moral obligation to stop the executions and killings that are happening in Syria that happened in Libya? That a life is a life is a life and we value all life and if we ignore the killing of people who aren't part of our tribe, then woe to us as a people and woe to our nation. Are we allowed to sit idly by? What would have happened to more of our people? God forbid... On Monday, we would light seven candles instead of six, or even eight. The text is telling us something critical. It's telling us that we have a responsibility, that we have an obligation. Don't stand on the blood of your neighbor. On this Shabbat before Yom HaShoah, let us think about the ethical teachings in this Torah portion that are inspired by all the forms of resistance that are often overlooked when we think about the Holocaust. Let the leadership and inspiration and courage be ours and let it encourage us to make a difference when a difference is needed and to pivot our focus from the eyes and the iPads and the iPods, from the personals in our computing and looking after our health to the unity and community to the we and the us that is so desperately needed. Let that be our inspiration. Let them be our martyrs that taught us the way. And when we wake, may we make a difference in this world for others too. Amen.